0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 12th. So this week, a lot of kids in this country went back to school even as the COVID surge continues to get worse. Hospital systems in several states are on the brink of failure. In Mississippi, they're putting ICU beds into a parking garage. In Florida, hospitals are scrambling to hire hundreds of travel nurses. And lots of people are working to try to turn this surge around. A big part of that, of course, is vaccinations. At any moment, the FDA is expected to authorize a booster for immunocompromised people. And in California, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that his state will mandate vaccinations or weekly testing for all school staff.
1: Not just teachers, credentialed staff, uh, paraeducators, custodial staff, the bus drivers, uh, folks. Uh, that are critical to supporting the entire school ecosystem also submit a verification of vaccination and or submit to weekly testing. Uh, We think this is the right thing to do, and we think this is a sustainable way to keeping our schools open and to address the number one anxiety that parents like myself have, I have four young children, and that is knowing that the schools are doing everything in their power to keep our kids safe, to keep our kids healthy.
0: But what's happening in California is not happening everywhere. Some states aren't even mandating masks for students and teachers. In a few states, governors are banning mask mandates. Meanwhile, more kids are going to the hospital. There's new data from last week showing that children made up about 15 percent of all newly reported COVID cases across the nation. For a lot of parents, these numbers are scary. And they're also infuriating. Our economics correspondent Heather Long has been talking to parents about how they're navigating all the concerns around schools, especially for moms who often end up being the parent who has to figure out childcare. We checked in with Heather about how the surge is affecting working moms, especially.
1: I think there's a huge amount of frustration on um, I just heard so much exasperation from a lot of women, like why doesn't my employer understand? Why Why don't people get the vaccine? A lot of anger that, including from some child care workers I spoke to, that part of the reason that their daycare had to shut down is because another teacher refused to get the vaccine ended up getting COVID and, of course, was exposing dozens of children in their own classroom to the virus. And ultimately, they determined that they had to shut the whole school down because there had been probably enough contact happening. A lot of parents also frustrated just at the uncertainty around the school situation, with the several states that pass laws to say no mask mandates, no masks and uh, are allowed to be mandated in schools. And again, that's just an extra layer of confusion, and sort of feels like an extra removing an extra layer of protection.
0: Some parents are also being told that they need to come back to work in person, even though at any moment they could get that call, that their child's teacher has COVID, that there's a case at daycare, that the whole family needs to quarantine at home.
1: So many parents told me, I feel like I am back in the horrible dregs of a year ago where life is so uncertain and, and things could change You know, I could be home with the kids again in an instant.
0: Things are even more complicated if you have a job where you
1: can't work from home or you don't get paid sick leave. The word panic kept coming up over and over again as I spoke to different parents, particularly moms, about this fall. So many said some line like this, they would say. I thought if I could just get to mid-August or September when my kid would go back to school, it would be okay. You know, we would We would basically have made it through the worst. And now I'm back into a world where it's highly likely that my child will be exposed at some point and the whole family will end up having to quarantine. And you just don't know when that is. Like if they knew it was going to be September 20th, they could plan for that, but you don't. And you're just on high alert all the time. And we've already started to see it. The article is laced with stories of uh, parents, particularly moms who got these phone calls from the summer camp or the daycare, like, sorry, There's been an exposure. You have 15, 20, 30 minutes to come pick up your children. And that's just super hard for anybody to deal with. It's just one more stress that moms are dealing with. They're trying to figure out these schedules. They're trying to figure out how to get to work or back to work themselves. They're trying to read up on all these rules. Should their kid wear a mask? Should their kid be vaccinated? When can that happen? And on top of all that, they're trying to project normalcy for their kids in such an unnormal time.
0: That was Heather Long, economics correspondent at The Post. The challenges that the Delta variant is posing for school reopening is bringing up a lot of new questions. Questions like, how much does this version of COVID actually affect children? What's the data around how masks prevent outbreaks in classrooms? Or should you even be sending your kid back to school? If you have questions about the Delta variant and kids and schools, we want to hear them. You can email us at postreports@washpost.com, And even better, if you record a short voice memo with your name and your question. We'll be answering those on the show next week. After the break, we've got an update on the status of the Dixie Fire, which is breaking records and still burning in California. We'll be right back.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply.
2: The Dixie Fire has been burning since mid-July. It now covers more than 500,000 acres of land in four counties in California, a few hours' drive north of Sacramento. It has forced thousands of people to evacuate their homes. And last week, it destroyed an entire town. Um, It ruined the town of Greenville, which has about 1,000 people living in it. It's a very tight-knit Sierra Nevada community, and most of it is now gone.
0: Marissa Ayati is a reporter for The Post. She is near Greenville, talking to people who've been affected by the fire. One of those people is Plumas County Under-Sheriff Chad Herman.
3: This area is still actively on fire. This area, they feel they have a pretty good handle on it. Greenville isn't there. That's the problem. Greenville, the infrastructure of Greenville has been pretty destroyed. Um, The town's devastated. You have realistically the high school standing, a market standing, um, a professional service building standing, and a couple of residents on the outskirts here and there. But Greenville proper, the central
0: components of the town are gone. Tell me about what the conversations have been like with the people who live in Greenville. What has it been like for them to have this fire sweep through their town?
2: It has largely been surreal for people. Um, A lot of the folks who live in Greenville have been there for generations. Their families grew up there. Their ancestors are buried there. And it's hard for them to wrap their minds around the fact that it isn't there anymore. I met a young couple named Stephanie Fairbanks and Josh Olson. Both of them have lived in Greenville for years and have family around. And they haven't even been back to see their home that burned down. Have you been able to get back to see your property at all?
1: Mm-mm.
3: Not yet. And like I like I said, I haven't looked at any of the pictures or watched any of the videos. Not even, like not of town, not of my house, um, because, uh, I think that the only thing that's like holding me together is just a, the vision of like Greenville as it was. Even my home itself is more than just like, you know, my home, like it was my mom's home for a while. So it's like, it's just, it's, uh,
2: yeah, it's just surreal. They evacuated twice, actually. They evacuated in late July and then were able to return briefly and then had to evacuate again. And this time their house didn't make it.
0: And what did they say about that experience?
2: So the fire came through Quincy on a Wednesday. And on the Monday and Tuesday before that, Stephanie and Josh said that they could see the fire approaching. There was a wall of flames that was coming down a mountainside nearby toward town. And I've never seen, you know, it's the fire the...
3: behavior that, that yeah, was exhibited was not <laughs> anything that I've ever seen or heard of before. You know, like when I looked out, I went out onto the front porch. Like the fire was coming in a straight line down Round Valley Road, which turns into Main Street. And it wasn't wasn't burning like from the ground up. You know, like there was like a treetop that was a catching on fire. fires spread out. They flank
2: it was very hot. Even in the shade, they said the shade felt as hot as standing in direct sunlight without any wind. Um, And they saw helicopters circling overhead, dropping flame retardant, trying to stop the fire, big plumes of smoke. So it was was clear to them that the fire was nearby, even as they still hoped that firefighters would be able to stop it.
3: Once I've once I, uh, we were at the end of Stampley Lane getting ready to leave and the tanks blew at the gas station and like the flames shot up like as high as the mountains. They're like probably a thousand foot flames. And uh, yeah. then at that point in time, I was like, it's, town's it's gone. gone.
2: And so when they left, they took with them the things yeah, that absolutely. they knew they couldn't replace.
3: I grabbed my two dogs, Ashes, um, that... You know, pretty much lived their whole lives here in, in Greenville. Uh, those were the first things I grabbed, and then it's just a succession down from there of what means something to me that I absolutely can't replace. You know? I grabbed like, um, like my son's birth certificate with his footprints on it, and just baby pictures and anything I had of him, and then.
2: But they still thought life. they would be going back, and they learned the day after this fire swept through that that wouldn't be possible.
0: And what is their plan now? Where are they going to go?
2: That is up in the air for both this particular couple and most of the folks that I met. Stephanie Fairbanks and Josh Olson are currently staying with family in a town several hours away.
3: We really, uh, we're just displaced wherever we end up. Yeah, uh, that's what's like the hardest kind of to swallow. You know, is that we can't it's not just home. our home, it's our hometown, you know what I mean? It's not like we can just be like, oh, we'll just find another house to rent or, you know what I mean? See if we can stay with so-and-so until we get it figured out. There's, but we're still at home in town, you know what I mean?
2: It's- They're kind of waiting for an okay from the Plumas County Sheriff's Office to be able to go back to Greenville and check on the status of their property, see if somehow any of their personal items made it. But that might take a while. I talked the other day with the Plumas County Undersheriff, Chad Herman. So when you say that's an extended process, is that a matter of days or weeks? I, is think, there we're, I, I think we're going to be weeks out. Okay. There's, there's
3: several processes that have to take place. We don't want to send people in without doing a cursory search with search and rescue to make sure we don't have any bodies. Okay. I mean, that that's the last thing we want to do is allow people back in and find somebody that we didn't even know was there. That's, they've gone through enough stress, so they don't need that.
2: It's still fairly dangerous in Greenville. It's it's still under mandatory evacuation. There could be spot fires burning underground. The air could be dangerous just from burning rubber and asbestos. And so when law enforcement sees families there, they are asking them to leave.
0: It seems like there's so much that has to happen even for the prospect of people being able to come back to their houses just to see what's not there anymore. But I wonder about for even the longer term, like, is this town going to come back? Or is it is it just gone?
2: There's really no way of knowing right now. There are several people who talk about wanting to rebuild and being convinced that the town will come back and it will exist again. And there are other folks who are saying that they plan to leave or have already left the state. I talked to one family yesterday who said that they are not going to stay in California at all. They plan to move to Texas. They have been thinking about it for a while. They feel like wildfire seasons are getting worse and worse, and that if they rebuild in Greenville or anywhere in the area, they're they're just going to find themselves in a similar situation again. There are a lot of low-income residents in, in Greenville, people who didn't necessarily have insurance on their homes, and, and might not have the money to rebuild. So one of the things that some people have also raised is is that the character of, of any future Greenville might be very different from the Greenville that existed.
0: So what is the prospect for getting the Dixie Fire under control? And what's going to happen to other towns that are currently being threatened by this
1: fire?
2: It's not really clear. The The fire is about 30% contained as we're talking this morning, but it has continued to grow over the past few weeks. There are new people and, and new towns that are evacuating each day, even as some people are able to go back to their homes. So it's, it's pretty unclear. Um, recently in the updates that the fire agencies have set out, um, they have said that Containment of the fire is TBD. They used to be predicting a date for it or a rough time period, and now it is up in the air. So there really isn't a clear endpoint for this.
0: Marissa, you know, the fact that this fire has now broken records, I mean, it feels like just last summer we were talking about fires that were breaking records for being larger and more intense than ever before. And I wonder if this is like the new reality of the question that I will be having to ask you and people like you for years going forward, that every summer we're going to see fires like this that are breaking records and that are getting larger and larger in ways that are truly unprecedented.
2: That's definitely the fear of a lot of scientists, particularly those that are experts in climate change. Wildfire seasons are exacerbated both by the changing climate and right now severe drought in California, and that they are getting worse. Um, It it does feel like we have this conversation year after year where we're saying it's a particularly bad wildfire season or it's the worst one in years. um, And yet that has happened every year for a few years now. And so there's definitely a fear that these fires, which have always been a fact of life in this area of the country, are are getting harder to control, are getting scarier. And I think we're seeing the fact that these can really threaten people's lives in, in a very real way. It doesn't feel quite as theoretical as it may have felt in the past.
0: Marissa Ayadi is a general assignment reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed. Jordan Marie Smith, Sabi Robinson, and Emma Telkoff produced. Don't forget to send your questions about COVID and children to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.